0: Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this exciting Thursday here in the nation's capital where, believe it or not, we are now little more than two weeks away from the Iowa caucuses. Coming up, we're going to debate the political consequences of the Warren Sanders on-again, off-again feud, discuss why one particularly fickle group of voters might decide who wins in Iowa, and ponder the puzzling campaign of now former candidate Cory Booker. Join us every week, where we will take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms can, by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in the states that will matter. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy, and today I am joined by Emily Coday, McClatchy's political correspondent, who I learned this week shares my fondness for early aughts Italian soccer players. True. true. Good to be here. If you you know who Gattuso is, you are in good company on this podcast. (laughs) And this week, we are especially pleased to welcome back to the program Adam Wallner, McClatchy's politics editor. Adam so great for you to come back to the show
1: it's, it's uh, great to be back I, I don't really have anything to add about uh, Italian soccer in any era or soccer really a- at all I just hope that Ooh. you know that uh, Emily and I can remain civil you know our uh, football teams are matching up on Sunday oh the that's 49ers true. and the Packers in the NFC championship games so um, hopefully you know unlike Sanders and Warren we're gonna keep our right. our, our, our personal disputes outside the confines studio. So. Right. Well, <laughs> away from the hot <laughs> mics, exactly yes. that's
0: right well well Jeremy has some backup mics for us too, yeah, so yeah just, just be. Exactly. Just cautious. Okay, well, speaking of that, uh, we are now two days removed from the seventh Democratic debate, the last public showdown of the primary, before Democrats in Iowa make their picks on February 3rd. And without question, the moment from Tuesday that seems to have the longest lasting consequence was a confrontation, sort of confrontation, between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Okay, the quick recap, in case you missed it, CNN reported and Warren later alleged on the record that Bernie Sanders told her during a 2018 meeting that he didn't think a woman could defeat Donald Trump. Explosive allegation, of course. Sanders vehemently denies saying any such thing, and during the debate, both candidates stuck to their stories and seemed intent on trying to move on, though an awkward non-handshake after the debate and the subsequent anger expressed online by admirers of both thrown to question of whether that is really possible. People are calling it Handshake Ghazi. I don't know if you guys are they? You guys it. I did, not,
1: I did not see that.
0: <laughs> Maybe it's just me. But here's my question for you, Emily, because other than the extreme awkwardness of the most memorable moment yeah. of the exchange, came when Warren forcefully argued why she and any woman really can win presidential elections. In spite of everything that's happened and the subsequent fallout, did the senator from Massachusetts come out of this debate with momentum?
2: I think that that was a powerful moment for her. I, you know, it was the headline from a lot of stories from the debate night was Warren taking on this gender stereotype. It's something that's been talked about. People have alluded to in a lot of different ways and, and in reporting and in town halls, etc. I mean, she gets that question a lot, I think, because Democrats are so fixated on beating Donald Trump. And then the question becomes, can a woman beat Donald Trump? It is sort of a central question after Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 when she was the heavy favorite. I mean, so- how many
0: stories have we seen, Emily, where... There's some Democratic voter who says something along the lines of, I like Warren, but I just don't know if we're ready to vote for elect a one president or if that the voters Democrats need are ready to vote for. Right. It feels like the central I was actually just having coffee with someone, a Democratic operative today. We kind of agree that it seems like the central question of yeah. this campaign so far.
2: And she took that head on. And I thought she did it in a really effective way in terms of pointing out the women on the stage had won their elections um, consistently and even beaten. Republican incumbents, although I will say in her case, she beat Scott Brown in very deep blue Massachusetts. <laughs> so it's a little bit different than, say, like an Amy Klobuchar in the Midwest or, or, Plenty of other folks in different parts of the country. Nonetheless, I thought it was effective, and I thought it was actually a really masterful way to sort of diffuse the tension, at least on the stage. <laughs> they went back at it afterwards. Now we know, but at the time, she really turned it and made it more about an argument about her rather than a spat between her and Bernie. I mean,
0: my own my own theory about why she has dipped in the polls and to put it in context, from about October to now, in the Real Clear Politics average, she's lost about ten points nationally, give, give or take. You know, and there were at the time it was a lot of questions, as we've discussed in the show, about her support for Medicare for All, whether she could pay for it, getting bogged down in some of the details, her ultimately backing off some of that support. But I always felt like that was a stand-in for questions about her electability. That, you know, there was this recognition that, oh, she's supporting this really big expensive plan Mm -hmm. and we're not sure, you know, there there's just a thought again, Democratic voters playing pundits. I don't know if that's going to be that's gonna pass muster in a in a general election. But she hasn't really, until Tuesday, hadn't really addressed that head-on or really made an electability case for. Her. To me, it was the biggest moment of the debate. I know the handshake, the subsequent post-debate handshake has gotten any attention, but you know, and, and and she did it in such a way. It was a really forceful argument about why she can be elected and seem, and in theory, could rally a lot of women Democratic voters to, to her cause.
2: Absolutely. and I mean, one thing we do know about this race, we don't know a whole lot about how this is going to shake out, but we do know a lot of people are still making up their minds. I mean, yes. it is. it's early for most voters. It's not so early for Iowa voters, and Iowa voters are still largely undecided. I mean, Bernie Sanders, I think one of the reasons we have seen him rise to the top of some polls is that he has such a devoted base. But there's questions about whether he can expand that base. And there's this whole other segment, like between 40 and 50 percent of the electorate in some of these states that are still not completely sold on their first choice. And so if someone like Warren can kind of convince them, maybe they were wavering, I don't know if she can really do it. I really like her, but I really, really, really want to beat Trump. You know, maybe that helped kind of shore up some confidence in her. We'll see. I mean, it's just... For me, it seemed like it was one of her most effective debates in terms of really countering some of the narratives that have emerged about her.
0: So, Adam, I know you have a little different theory about who this really benefits, and we're gonna get to that real, real yeah. quick, though, because I, 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 I don't want to lose the thread on this. We have this strange situation where, again, as I alluded to at the, at the top, you know, Bernie and and Elizabeth seem like they want to try to de-escalate this fight, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And and you and their campaigns have taken pains to do that. Jane Sanders, the senator's wife, not exactly a regular quote out on the campaign trail, was quoted in right. the Associated Press story, basically urging everyone to try to move on. But is that going to be possible? Because it doesn't seem like the supporters are, are all that. Interesting. No,
1: well, yeah, and I'll um, you know quote a, a tweet from our esteemed colleague Dave Katniss, who's actually on his way to Iowa as we speak. You know, it seems like Warren herself, you know, I think wants to keep part of this discussion alive, particularly the the role that sexism has potentially played in this campaign, just the role of women in politics in general, even if her supporters maybe seem to be a little more uncomfortable with, you know, how this whole Sanders-Warren dispute will work in the long run. And then Bernie Sanders himself, I think, doesn't want to add a lot uh, more fuel to the fire here, but clearly his supporters do. Sanders supporters, as we've discussed a lot on this podcast, are, you know, very committed, have been with him since the beginning and are very active online. I think, you know, if any of our listeners are on on Twitter at all, they may have noticed a whole lot of Sanders supporters are tweeting snakes at, at Elizabeth Warren, which is Great which is I mean which, is really, right, which is really right which is really I mean remarkable just given that I mean Sanders and Warren ide- ideologically are you know, so close, you know, you know, particularly compared to other candidates in the race and have, you know, by all accounts have had a good relationship, you know, with each other, be yeah. serving in, in the Senate together. I think we are kind of officially now into the second phase of this story where at this point, I don't think we're going to learn much more about this private meeting between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. I think they've both said what they're going to say about it. You know, they've put out statements about it. They've talked about it on the debate stage. They had their little uh, scuffle after the
0: debate. Handshake Gaza, yes,
1: yes. The uh, mm-hmm. and and CNN now has released the audio from that. So I think I think that's kind of all we're gonna get out of that, and we don't know exactly what was said. In that meeting, I don't know if we're ever going to get to the bottom of that. You know, maybe that'll be come out in some of the uh, the po- postmortems of the campaigns or some of the books that are written about this campaign. But I think now that the discussion has moved into the, you know, kind of this undercurrent that has been there really since the beginning of this race. And, Alex, I know you even wrote a story about this, I, I want to say, back in spring of 2019 when, when Beto O'Rourke had just gotten into the race and was receiving a lot of positive media attention. Pete Buttigieg, was that boomlet was just starting. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders were leading the polls then. and I think a lot of people were looking at this this field that was very diverse both from a racial standpoint and from a gender standpoint, but you had four white guys who were really dominating the discussion. And already a lot of Democratic women were starting to raise concerns that even though you had the likes of Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Kristen Gillibrand at the time, just weren't able to gain a lot of traction – Now, fast forward, you know, we're in the the closing weeks here before the caucuses. Elizabeth Warren is the only woman in the top tier of the race. You know, Amy Klobuchar still, I think, on the outside looking in on that. And if she is sort of able to turn this discussion about the role of women in politics and whether or not a woman can become president in her favor, I think, as Emily was alluding to, you know, a a lot of voters who are on the fence right now, particularly women voters, could rally to, to, to her cause now. You know, that's not to say that this doesn't carry a, a lot of risk. You know, I think it's it's going to be really difficult for her to try and peel off any Bernie Sanders supporters from all of this, and and the, and you know, the backlash there could only you know cause them to rally around their candidate. Further, and I think we're going to see how this really plays out on the campaign trail this weekend. So Sanders and Warren are, are going to be in Iowa, and this is really this could potentially be one of their last long stretches in Iowa before the caucuses because of the the Senate impeachment trial. They're, they may have to spend a lot of time in D.C. in these next couple weeks before Iowa. But you know, I do think that while they're, they're cer- this certainly carries a lot of risk, if Warren is able to rally a lot of women to her side, and you know, women are a you know a huge chunk of the Democratic electorate in such a fluid race, I, I don't think that
0: can be discounted. So two. One, if Warren or Klobuchar fall short in this nomination, there is just this big picture. There is going to be a reckoning in the Democratic Party about what the the female candidates for president went through and how voters responded to them in many ways. As we discussed, Emily playing pundit and wondering whether or not a woman could win, you know, not being sexist, but worried about sexism. There's going to be a big reckoning. Let's let's put that aside for a moment, because, Adam, I know that, you know, look, there there is a and, and I agree more so than I and I would have even thought. In the immediate aftermath of the debate, that maybe this is the jolt that Warren's campaign needed. However, mm-hmm. there is a separate scenario, a separate idea out there that as Warren and and Bernie violate this non-aggression pact that they they had, these two great friends finally starting to to turn on each other as they inevitably would in a race. Because after all, their opponents does this benefit Joe Biden?
1: I think it does. I think ultimately this this whole episode and this kind of split among progressives with Warren and Sanders is going to help Joe Biden in the long run. And it's kind of amazing really at these past few debates, I mean, Joe Biden, who, you know, even though he's not necessarily leading in Iowa, New Hampshire, is still the national front runner in this race. And I think, you know, I think a lot of us would consider him still the most likely person to emerge from this nomination fight this summer. And the last couple of debates, he hasn't taken a lot of fire. And I think if if the focus remains on Warren and Sanders and and progressives kind of remain split among him and kind of the more moderate portion of of the party continue to gravitate to Joe Biden, I think in the long run this could help him because I also think, you know, the the underlying part of all this is that I think – most Democrats assume that only one of, you know, Sanders or Warren are going to kind of get to that final stage of the mm-hmm. race when we're down to maybe the final two candidates, right? Like, you know, they are, you know, the, the progressive in this race, but really only one of them is going to be able to emerge from that lane. And by the time we get to that point, is this rift between their supporters going to be so severe that it's going to prevent them from rallying around whoever emerges from those two, and that ultimately helps you know you know whether it's Joe Biden or whoever else emerges from kind of that more moderate establishment lane? You know, once we get you know in, into March or, or April, this you know,
0: thing. I mean, one, one note about Biden in the debates, per the tracking from the Washington Post, he actually spoke the third least in the December debate. Mm-hmm. And he spoke the second least.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. In
0: this week's debate, the only candidate who participated in both debates, our apologies to Andrew Yang, who spoke less was Tom Steyer. And this is a guy who, over the course of the last month, as we've discussed many times on the show, really has emerged as a, a, a fragile but also clear frontrunner in this race. And, and, Emily, this is, it was unexpected, I think, because it seemed like Sanders and his campaign spent all week prepping people for attacks on, yeah. on Joe Biden, whether it was his Iraq war record or Social Security. It just didn't happen. I mean, we got a little foreign policy, but, but not much.
2: Well, I think even in the exchange between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, what you saw was candidates who are being very careful in terms of attacking one another. I mean, they they saved their harshest exchange for what they thought was off the microphone and off the cameras. Unfortunately for them, it was caught on the microphone still. But. There's certainly a caution, and we wrote about this amongst all of the candidates, not to mm-hmm. go after one another. They can let their surrogates and their you know, supporters do the attacking. None of them wants to be seen as being overly aggressive because there's still so much fluidity in the race. And I think, as we talked about in the past, when you have little to lose, like a Tulsi Gabbard or a Julian Castro, and you're just trying to gain some traction, you can be more aggressive and, and not so worried about the downside. For these guys, there's a lot of downside if it, if it right. doesn't end up coming off well. Right. And, and, so, and, and
1: just look at the track record of these candidates who have yeah. you know, levied attacks at yeah. the debates. I mean, it really has not worked out for them in, in the long run. I mean, I think probably the most the most success anybody has had sort of going directly after one of their rivals was Kamala Harris in that first debate in Miami. Right. But that, you know, that only helped her for, what, maybe a couple weeks. I think everybody else that's tried, you know, these sort of one-on-one attacks maybe saw, you know, a, a short-term bump at best. But in the long run, it really did not end up helping them. So I think these candidates, <laughs> you know, they're, they're taking lessons from that, yeah. and when you're a couple weeks out from from voting and things are still so unsettled. And Iowa, you know, also kind of has this reputation of not really rewarding negative campaigning, which I, you know, I think that gets a little overplayed and kind of plays into this mm-hmm. sort of stereotype about Midwestern voters. But, but at the same time, I do think there is a little bit of truth to that. And especially, in, you know, just the way the Iowa caucuses work that, you know, if you if you don't reach the 15 percent threshold right. at certain caucus sites, your supporters have to realign. So, you know, you know, if you're attacking, one candidate supporters, or you're attacking one candidate at, at one part of the race, but then at a different part of the race, you're trying to bring them over to your side that obviously uh, can create s- some complications. So I just think the fact that sort of the, the personal direct attacks have had such little success, I think that's why we haven't really been seeing that at some of these these recent debates. Well, I
0: just got to say, I think, again, this was the last debate before people actually start to, to Make decisions in this primary, and I think, in particular, the, the what I was most interested in seeing in this debate was if Bernie Sanders was able to go after Joe Biden on Social Security, which right. his campaign telegraphed mm-hmm. over and over that his long record in public service, that he had at different points expressed an openness to, to cutting Social Security in one way or another. Um, that's a hotly contested debate and argument. And I'm sure the Biden folks would contest it. However. That, to me, seemed like the, the a real possibility for Bernie Sanders to make some headway on Joe Biden. This isn't something that happened 40 years ago and an issue that doesn't affect a lot of people, particularly in Iowa, like busing. You know, this is uh, something very clear and present in their lives and Social Security, particularly in an older state. And it was, you know, look, I think Bernie's moment to try to make a move on, on Joe Biden. You know, their, their constituencies, believe it or not, really do overlap. Hmm. And there was right. an opportunity for him. And, and I just think. We could look back on that moment and the fact that there was more of a confrontation between Bernie and Warren as significant, and the fact that he wasn't as his again as his campaign really made clear they wanted to do to go after Biden. To me, it's it's potentially a big, a big and big picture, a very significant event. One last thought before we move on to the next topic, because I just found this interesting: the viewership numbers mm. for for the debate, seven point three million people. Now, now this is up from the debate in December, but. Just for context, the first debate in Miami all the way back in June had 18 million viewers. Um, A lot of the the general populace. Still, kind of tuning this race out, yeah. um, and it's and it's a little surprising. I would expect <laughs> that the share of people in Iowa watching was was pretty sure. high, but yeah, just just yeah. something to, to to keep in mind. Big picture, if you think everyone's kind of rushing into this uh, race right now and paying attention, it's not. It's not cool. right. and, yeah, and I wonder happening? how much of that
1: too just has to do with you know a lot of the coverage after the debates as well. I think has reflected that not much has changed after these debates like uh, you know have there really been any moments yeah. that have changed the, the course of the race long term uh, you know I, I don't really think so and and even you know what are we talking about after, after this this last debate it's actually something that happened after the debate was was over and something that wasn't actually litigated on the debate stage so I wonder you know as voters are kind of you know making up their minds here they, they don't view debates as something that is as helpful <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to, to them as, as maybe they, they once did um, it's an interesting fatigue, dynamic that this I think. right and the fatigue is sure all of that but yeah the viewership numbers I think is sort of an an underplayed uh, story and all this, but let, let's maybe talk about some of those uh, undecided voters. Let's uh, talk about them. Yeah. I think you know it's been really fascinating, I, and you know that you know this happens you know in in every election, but I I do think it is notable that now that we're a couple weeks from Iowa and the, the, you know there's so little separation between the top four candidates and so many caucus goers and voters in a lot of the early states, even those who Maybe say they have made up their minds. You know, are still open to switching, and there are still so many undecided voters. And you know, we've been talking a lot about you know some of the ideological splits between the candidates, but I think this race has also fallen just as much along uh, demographic lines. You know, Alex, you alluded to how you know Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden have, have actually you know had a little bit of a back and forth because they're going after uh, a similar slice of, of, of working class voters. But I think one of the you know big remaining groups here, or, or you know, kind of one of the more volatile groups that could really tip this race one way or the other are uh, white college-educated voters. And this is something you wrote about, Alex. And just to kind of give our listeners just kind of a, you know, a brief kind of explainer on why we sort of dice the electorate like this, because you know, you know, we talk a lot about the ideological lanes. You, know, you have the progressives, the moderates, and all that. Um, but then you know, when you're looking at uh, you know, certain demographic groups in, in, you know, in the Democratic primary, which of them make up a significant subset of the electorate? White college-educated voters are certainly that, making up about a quarter of it. And then, which you know are, are sort of the the swing groups. You know, we talk a lot about uh, black voters, for instance, but they have been pretty consistently with with Joe Biden since the beginning. We've talked about working class voters; they you know are more or less going with Joe Biden or or Bernie Sanders throughout the course of the race. But as, as you wrote, Alex, uh, college-educated voters have been all over the place throughout the, this entire
0: race. As you say, I mean, a lot of different voter groups have, re- relatively speaking, been locked into their candidate, whether that's Biden or Sanders. But these college-educated White suburban, relatively affluent, maybe MSNBC watching <laughs> voters, Reach on that, fans, yeah. right? But and in, in, in some in some respects, have bounced between the candidates. If you look at the polling as we did in the story, CNN has polled almost every month and broken out, you know, which candidate has the most support among college educated white voters. At first, it was actually Joe Biden. I and mean, as much as we talk about how his support, despite the sort of flurry of attacks against him, hasn't affected, it has affected his support with this demographic group. And they have, at different times, really kind of flocked to someone like Kamala Harris after the, the first mm-hmm. debate. Then they, you know, decided, no, she's not actually for us. And they went to Elizabeth Warren and really helped power her rise through the fall. And then, again, as we mentioned, some of the Medicare for all attacks came. And they were like, oh, I'm not so sure. And now, particularly in the early states like Iowa or New Hampshire, where Buttigieg is most present... They've kind of gone to to his campaign, and we we've seen this group of voters switch to the, all these different candidates. It's, and the question is, who are they going to settle on, right? And that's that's the the most important part. That's why you know they could matter in a place like Iowa, as Emily mentioned earlier. So many voters are uncertain about who they're going to vote for. Even if they say in fact that they're going to they support so and so candidate, they actually indicate they're still open to changing their mind right. when pollsters ask. Um, so it's a it's a big deal, and and you know. I thought it was a group worth worth analyzing. And obviously, the first question is, why would this group be more open to changing or cycling through candidates than, than other demographic groups? The explanation seems to be a lot of these these folks, you know, they really dislike Donald Trump and they're really fixated on trying to defeat him. And, you know, they're they're more inclined to play pundit, as we were just talking about. And so it becomes this kind of second order thought process where it's who do I like? And in fact, I talked to a voter like this who said – who was almost romanticizing in the past how, oh, I could just vote for the candidate I wanted to. Now I can't. You know Now I have to think about, well, who do my Republican neighbors – who would they be open to voting for? And that just naturally you're, – you're going to be less sure of about – what other people think than what you think, and you're going to be less,
1: you know. And, and this is why they've been bouncing around to so many candidates, despite the fact that they're they're all so different. Like how someone could support, you know, a, a Pete Buttigieg who has kind of tried to carve out a little bit more of like a, a moderate stance in the race, but then obviously Elizabeth Warren, much farther to the left. For them, it's less about what's my, you know, what do I think about, you know, Medicare for all or about certain policy issues. But like you said, they're, they're not even, they're not trying to make up their minds. They're trying to think, okay, who would these voters support? Who's who? Who would other people support? That's who I'm going. Right. You know,
0: again, these candidates have risen and fallen seemingly as the narratives around them have changed in -hmm. a way that hasn't been the case with Joe Biden or, or Bernie Sanders. And and I think that's what that's what happens when you're trying to think about who my neighbor will vote for. You're going to be a lot more sensitive to that conversation. And when the conversation turns negative, as inevitably does in some case, maybe you're going to start to look for a different candidate. Now, look, the bottom line is, OK, so who are these voters going to support in mass? And I think this dovetails, Emily, with our first conversation that Warren, in some ways, making a pitch about her electability, again, mm-hmm. voters who really care about you know, defeating Donald Trump, and I should say not just care about defeating Donald Trump, but are like maybe especially tuned into this race. They've mm-hmm. made it kind of a part of their daily lives, whether to tune into MSNBC or check Twitter or whatever it is. Her making an electability push, maybe she brings some back back on board in, in, in this race. Or look, maybe Pete Buttigieg, they ultimately decide that a candidate who reminds them most of Barack Obama, at least in rhetoric, maybe he's the candidate. And so you know, that's it's 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 an an interesting discussion and I know a lot of the Democrats and pollsters I spoke with, they really didn't have any ideas about where you know the, these 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 voters. And one one interesting thing to think about, just because you know it's always interesting to kind of dive into the the electorates of both parties and what their priorities are. One thing that did come out is that for as much as they dislike Trump, and as one pollster described it to me, their dislike or their even their hatred of President Trump is sky high right now. They still see compromise as a fundamental part of what they want in a candidate, you know, and they still prioritize that above, say, like the the, the kind of class war that, that Bernie Sanders is is fighting or wants to fight. And that would explain again why, you know, they're they maybe a little bit turned off when they started to think that, oh, Elizabeth Warren is too liberal, mm-hmm. you know, and, and no, we need a candidate. It's why they might flock to someone like Pete Buttigieg, who talks like that in his own campaign speeches. So, and, and you know, and it just provides a really, I think,
1: interesting this particular voter group provides a really interesting window into this whole, you know, vague and subjective concept of electability that has been driving so much of the conversation in, in the 2020 election. You know, voters say they want somebody who can beat Donald Trump. And, and, you know, and we don't know exactly who who that could be. I mean, you know, it could be any one of these candidates. But the fact that they're they bouncing around to so many, you know, they're even in their own minds, they can't even figure out exactly what electability is. Is it we need someone who who's a woman? We need a person of color. We just need sort of a, you know, a, a safe, you know, moderate white guy. And of course, I think, you know, the whole electability argument just sort of inherently hurts you know, people who aren't white men, right? Because you think of who can be elected president. Well, it's been mostly white men. So it's it you know, can be a little bit tougher maybe for voters to envision an Elizabeth Warren or, you know, an Amy Klobuchar winning. But I do think now that Elizabeth Warren in particular has made this a, a part of her pitch. If, you know, if she can get these voters to her side, I mean, they, as I mentioned, they make up a quarter of the electorate, but they play an even more outsized role in states like Iowa and New Hampshire and will play a huge role down the road as well in Super Tuesday states. And then you also have to consider, you know, that's when, when Michael Bloomberg comes into the race. I think and I think Alex, one of the voters you quoted in, in your story who has bounced around to several different candidates is now looking at and, and Michael Bloomberg. So you know, just you know he yes, he, he continues yeah. to hang over that this whole race in, in more ways than one as well.
2: McClatchy's Washington DC Bureau is tracking the best election reporting from beyond the bubble in a new daily newsletter. Get the Impact 2020 newsletter in your inbox weekdays at four PM by signing up at Impact Twenty Twenty dot com slash briefing.
0: Well, speaking of candidates who are not white men, Cory Booker, the week actually began with news that he was ending his campaign for president, the announcement was part surprise, part expected, the senator's campaign has struggled badly to gain even the barest of traction, either nationally or in any of the early states, but the decision also brought to an end one of the primary's enduring mysteries, because even if Booker didn't break through, most Democrats and political reporters struggle to understand why he wasn't more of a success. He was young, dynamic, progressive, and could make a pretty strong argument that he was one of the field's most electable candidates. So, Emily, it's one of the biggest mysteries of the primary. Like I said, solve it for us right now. Here we go.
2: Yeah, I, you know, there's a couple things with Booker. I think the way he approached his campaign... It, It was in some ways it was unique and it helped him stand out this sort of this radical love and unity message. But in other ways, I just think it wasn't the moment for that. Yes, people are fed up with Trump and the divisiveness. But I think what they want to see is someone who can really, again, as we've just been talking about, defeat Trump. And that might take a pretty hard edge. Nobody thinks this is going to be a nice, cuddly general election where everyone is, you know, really friendly with one another, even though they're a Political opponents. So, you don't
0: think the Democratic nominee and Trump could just stick to the issues, right? Exactly. You don't think that's yeah. going to happen?
2: Yeah, that's probably unlikely. So, you know, I think there there was a bit of a disconnect where people were like, "Oh, I really like Cory Booker. He seems like a really good guy. He's smart. He has experience." But they're like, "I just I don't see how that message really works." when Trump is just gonna go down into the like the nastiest parts of the of the political discourse. That's my own inclination and I, I don't know that that other people have necessarily like share that, but that's sort of my impression. I think another thing is when you do have this sort of ideological divide, the way we've seen in the primary, with Bernie and Elizabeth Warren staking out some pretty far-left policy items like Medicare for All, and then you have others like Biden who are really clearly more to the establishment side of the Democratic Party, there wasn't a clear place where Cory Booker fell. I mean, he had some very ambitious policy proposals, but that wasn't really part of the identity that he projected or that he spent a lot of time it seemed like talking about on the campaign trail he talked more about kind of these bigger higher level aspirations and it just it it just seemed like the race from the start just never really fit what cory booker was trying to do
1: but i think the the number one um overarching you know kind of dynamic that really hurt cory booker was that his quote-unquote star power i think peaked a couple years ago you know, mm-hmm. you think about when when he was the mayor of Newark, sort of billed as this rising star within the Democratic Party.
0: He would tweet out how he was shoveling snow in front of a constituent's driveway, you know, or you know became, you know, it was, and,
1: you know, you know, rose up to be New Jersey senator in, in 2013. You know, spoke at the Democratic convention, has been, you know, a, a go to surrogate for Democratic candidates for years. I think by the time his campaign launched, at least among, and you know, I think this, you know, falls a lot on the shoulders of the political press as well. You know, he he wasn't, you know, the the, the shiny new Object at that point, like we already kind of knew who Cory Booker was. We knew what he was all, what he was all about, even though voters maybe didn't. So his campaign wasn't really covered as sort of a, a new thing, and maybe the same way that, that Pete Buttigieg's was, for instance. So I, you know, I think that it's almost peaking too early, and because of that, he was just never able to have even a moment in this race. I just wanted to run some of these polling numbers by you guys. because I think it's it's really fascinating. You have data. Um, you have you have you did yeah. homework on this thing. Um, you know, I never really viewed Cory Booker as a top tier candidate at any point during this race i thought he had the potential to get there i thought he'd at least have a moment at some point i mean he he had a very by all accounts had a very strong campaign staff had a lot of endorsements on the ground in states like iowa new hampshire south carolina again by all accounts had had a very strong organization there but looking back at the real Clear politics polling average never was above seven percent throughout all of 2019 or 2020 and that was back in march of last year he closed out the the race at a real clear politics average of just three points. That's, you know, where he generally was in most of the polls the last few months. Um, But as Emily mentioned, I mean, he he was very well liked among the Democratic Mm -hmm. electorate. Monmouth's Iowa poll that just came out a couple weeks ago had him at a plus 42 favorable rating. That puts him right up there with a lot of the top candidates in the race, even better than Joe Biden. Yet he was at just 4% overall and just as critically only a 3% of Iowa caucus go- goers viewed him as their second choice. So um, he never really got out-, out of the friend zone, right? You know, everyone, you know, liked him a lot. They're glad that he was running for president, but they just never viewed him as not only their first choice, but not their second or their, their third choice either.
2: That was the Philadelphia Inquirer just to Give credit to them. They had a headline that was yes. about the, the friend Cory Booker being in the friend zone. I would just point out one last thing with Booker that despite having some of those, as you said, like ultra progressive positions, he did have this past as a New Jersey senator where he was working on behalf of major constituent groups who happen to be big financial corporations because that's a big part of, of New Jersey. And so I think it was going to be very difficult for him to bridge that gap to win over people like on the far left who might be Warren or Bernie supporters, even though he's proposing some of these progressive Policy ideas—it's it just because of his links to the financial sector and the fact that he was sort of this establishment political figure. Did the traditional fundraising circuit rose up kind of through the traditional circles? Yeah, I know. think yeah,
1: that's an important thing to remember. You know, if he ever would have gotten into the the point in the race where he was viewed as a top tier contender, there's a lot. There was a lot of stuff to dig in to his record, everything you mentioned, plus his past support for charter schools. Yeah. that I think would have hurt him yeah. with with a lot of progressives.
0: Yeah, it was quietly one of the more telling moments for how the primary was going to go. It was only like a couple of months after booker declared in the winter of last year almost a full year ago at this point um he actually gave a speech i believe it was back in newark where he talked about basically not letting perfect be the enemy of good and that we have to deliver real tangible progress now to the voters who need it the most and it was this sign of he was already recalibrating and really to his and his team's credit did it a lot sooner than other candidates that you know what actually running as an, an ultra lefty or as the progressive candidate is not going to work in yeah. this race. You know, they tried to recalibrate, it didn't take on. But look in a race with twenty five candidates running for president, no no duh, it's really hard to, yeah. to win the nomination. And and we have seen candidate after candidate after candidate. I feel like we spent half of this show, in fact, talking about candidates who trying to navigate mm-hmm. the changing democratic electorate and single payer healthcare and And, you know, they gave it an effort. They obviously didn't succeed.
1: Well, this also, we should mention, won't be the last we're hearing of Cory Booker. I mean, whoever the Democratic nominee is, he'll be on the VP shortlist and, you know, likely will be a a go-to surrogate.
0: Okay, we are now going to begin what is my favorite segment every week. Tell me something I don't know. Emily, you're up first.
2: So I thought there were some really interesting numbers in this new Nevada poll um, that came out from the Reno newspaper earlier this week. I mean, Nevada is an early state. It comes after New Hampshire, and yet it still gets overlooked. Um, mm-hmm. People kind of skip right over Nevada and go to South Carolina. And it's it's harder to pull because it's a caucus state as well, and it can be unpredictable in that sense. But Biden has sort of been in the lead just, I think, in large part due to his his name ID. And in, in this particular poll, his lead had shrunk to one point with Bernie Sanders surging up. And both Buttigieg and Tom Steyer both rose 5 percentage points to 8%. So, I think we're we, we looking at Iowa and New Hampshire right now as sort of these big, make-or-break states, but there's still a lot of churn going on in Nevada, too, which could be an interesting kind of factor leading into South Carolina, where where things seem a lot more clear-cut with Biden sort of having this durable lead there. I get
0: the sense we're going to be talking a lot more about Sanders and Latino voters. Yeah, a, just, just a hunch, and it's not really clear to me how much support he has, but there's at least a possibility. It's more than we know right now. Adam, you're up next.
1: I want to briefly fast forward to the general election. And um, I think as our listeners know, I am contractually obligated to mention Wisconsin at least once on every you episode of this podcast. You get paid, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah,
0: like, $20 a um, mention? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Well,
1: uh, you know, I, I, I don't like to talk board? finances. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, it's a private uh, agreement, and I'll just uh, leave it at that. But, uh, but but just this week, we got a new poll from from the gold standard poll uh, in Wisconsin, the Marquette University law school poll. Now that we're into 2020, we're getting one of these about every month. So just kind of a good good check-in to where you know, things stand in in Wisconsin, a key battleground state, maybe the key battleground state um, when this is all said and done. And I've noticed uh, in these last few polls, there's been an interesting gap between President Trump's overall job approval rating and the approval of his handling of the economy. So uh, just on job approval, Wisconsin voters, 48 percent approve, 49 percent disapprove. Actually, uh, pretty good for him. It's been steadily rising in Wisconsin and certainly a couple points ahead of his national average right now. But then you take a look at his handling of the economy, it's up to 55 percent approve, 42 percent disapprove. So you're looking at a, a really, I think, critical group of, you know, about seven percent of that Wisconsin electorate that doesn't approve of Trump's job performance, meaning that, you know, they probably you know aren't a big fan of, of his just overall conduct in, in office, the way he carries himself, his rhetoric, his Twitter feed, maybe even, you know, other certain policies that he's pursued. But on the economy, you know, they look at You know, the unemployment rate is down, the stock market's doing well. They generally feel like they are in a a good place financially, so they approve of his handling of the economy. So, I mean, that group, I think, is going to be receiving a lot of attention between now and November, both from Trump and the Republicans. How do you convince these people that maybe generally don't like Trump, but approve of the way the economy is going, that you want to stick with him for another four years? And for the Democrats, how do you convince these people that, you know, things could be better? basically under a, a Democratic president. I think um, that's going to be a really key group to watch over the next uh, several
0: months. Incidentally, if you are one of those people or know one of those people, let me know. Email me at a- yeah, a- yeah, know,
1: Not not that I'm recycling content here, but I did uh, tweet this out uh, the other day when the poll was released and someone actually responded to me saying, I am one of these voters and made the point very clearly that Democrats need to art, you know, articulate a very specific message. You can't just expect these people to, to vote against Trump, right? Democrats need to give these people something to To vote for,
0: yeah, I could see them being the subject of uh, you know a couple uh, three thousand word profiles. Just (laughs) just you know, throwing that out there. Okay, mine is uh, pretty simple and straightforward. I know we focus a lot on the presidential primary. I do want to point out though, the coming congressional races. And in talking with a lot of people, you know, already plotting how they are going to win different House and Senate races from both parties. To be clear, there is one and only one question that they're asking themselves right now: Is Bernie Sanders going to win the nomination? If he doesn't. It's going to be a pretty standard congressional race. Of course, it will be dictated by the top, but someone like Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg or possibly even Elizabeth Warren, their agenda, what they want to accomplish in office, can roughly match what you see from your average Senate candidate, say Cal Cunningham in North Carolina or Mark Kelly in Arizona. All that changes, of course, if Bernie Sanders is the nominee and you would have almost an unprecedented situation in American politics where the agenda and aims of someone at the top of the ticket for either national party Is at times wildly different than what you see down the ticket. If you think we've talked a lot about Medicare for all during the primary, just wait till the general election. And I know it is something that Republicans, again, Republicans and Democrats who are already underway working on these races. Are really wondering hard about so just something to keep in mind. Yeah. It's not all about the presidential race, folks. Uh, we are going to be talking about Senate and House yeah, races. I, I think that yeah, show. that's like
1: one of the more, more like interesting sort of like under the radar dynamics of all this right now. And I think one thing to keep an eye on the next few weeks: Joe Biden starting to collect. You know, every day it feels like he's getting a couple more endorsements from those more moderate swing district uh, Democrats in the House. You know, if, if there's you know really a kind of a wave of these to, to Joe Biden, that'll tell you that they they're really concerned about the prospect of having you know a more progressive nominee at the top of the ticket
0: okay that's it for the show i want to thank of course adam and emily thanks for coming on guys thanks for you having bet. us and thank you to our producer jeremy sheeler and to our executive producer david cober and thank you our listeners check us out on apple podcast spotify stitcher or whatever podcast app you use and if you like what you're hearing please leave us a rating or a review talk to you next week